Welcome in to the Please Stay Inside podcast. My name is Rob. This is episode number eight. We are joined today by Brianne Cook. Uh, Brianne is a self-esteem and resilience coach based in the UK uh, who has worked in the mental health field uh, in several different capacities. You can find her on TikTok and YouTube at This Is Brianne Cook. Brianne, welcome on. Hello. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm really pleased to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about yourself. What is it that you do on a regular basis? Uh, yeah. Tell us a bit about that. Okay. So uh, I do a few different things. So um, about a year ago, I set up my own business and there's three different parts to it. So um, there's, I have a gift shop. It's a physical gift shop and an online gift shop where I sell kind of feel good positivity type gifts uh, and I am a self-esteem and resilience coach. And I also do mindful photography workshops. Oh, wow. um, so those are, and, and you know, there's, there's online courses as well um, in the pipeline, but those are the three main parts of my business at the moment. Wow. That's a lot to have to try to manage through three different, <laughs> three different aspects. It's a lot, but it is, it's difficult. I'm passionate about all of them. So, um, mm. It is hard sometimes to know where to turn my attention, but, uh, you know, I'm loving it, enjoying every step of the way. I love that. Which one of these, I guess, came first out of, uh, out of curiosity? Uh, what came first, to be honest, so what came, I started the study for the resilience coaching first. Uh, and then as I was waiting to finish that, I just felt like I couldn't stay in the job I was in any longer. Mm -hmm. So I opened up the gift shop. So even though the coaching study came first, the gift shop came second, if it was the first thing that was actually kind of live, so to speak. Um, and then the coaching and mindful photography came after that. Okay, awesome, awesome. Um, I'm curious, because I know, you know, I know what goes into the, uh, into the, the professional counselor position here in the States. I'm curious, what, what goes into like the resiliency coaching in the UK? What does that process look like? So, you know, it varies wildly depending on what coaching provider you go with and what organization. Mm -hmm. But for me, um, I went with an organization called um, Wellness Professionals at Work. And their system for me was, it was 18 study modules. And mm -hmm. um, each one of those 18 modules had an assignment to go with it. And then there was 50 skills hours, so practice hours with your fellow course um, students. And then after that, there was 50 practice hours with, with people that mm. were kind enough to be to be your clients um, and mm. then lots of kind of write-ups and reflections on those. So it was mm. quite intense, actually. It took yeah. about uh, two years to do. Okay. It, those role plays can be really, really intense. Uh, that's a, a part of my, my training that I remember very vividly. What was it like for you? Um, they are intense because they're not quite real, are they? Right. Like, they're not real people mostly people bring real things to, mm -hmm. to have coaching on but you're still aware that it's not quite real life and you're being observed sometimes so yeah. it's it's a bit nerve-wracking i think but uh yeah it's, it's a good experience still you learn a lot mm -hmm. through that process yeah definitely especially through that observation part like that's i think the, the worst part about it is being observed and like knowing that somebody is is right there watching and everything um yeah but yeah, it's it, you definitely get a lot of really wonderful experience from people being able to notice you and, and, and all of that 
even when it comes to just like some of the, you know, if you say like a lot or a lot of ums and then you break down every little bit of how you communicate. It's, it's a really wonderful process. <laughs> yeah. You just have to go in and just accept that you can't be mm -hmm. perfect and take it just as a learning experience and, mm -hmm. and that you'll get the most from it. Okay. That's a good point. I, I like that. I like that. So I'm curious, what is it that led to you becoming a resilience coach? I know it's kind of, it's not as simple as, you know, a day and night type of thing, but what is it that I guess first started that, that getting that ball rolling? Because first of all, I actually thought I would, I was managing a mental health education service and um, it's called Recovery College. It's based on a personal recovery movement, which if you go back in American history, you'll find it's quite strong as well, the mm. personal recovery movement. Um, and I was managing a team of people and I originally thought that I was going to do a coaching course because that might help me be a better manager, be a better supervisor, et cetera, mm. et cetera. And then during the process, um, I don't know if it's the same for you, but you can, as other students around you are practicing, they need their hours, you can volunteer as a coachee as well so i actually had coaching through that process as well and the coach that i had was incredible actually but what she made me realize was is not that you know i thought i had imposter syndrome i needed to be better in my job what she made me realize is actually it wasn't the job for me i was no longer mm. i was no longer happy that's not what i wanted it didn't really align with my values um anymore mm -hmm. so I missed, my background is in social work, so I missed that kind of one-to-one -one work. And right. a lot of the work I did in social work, you know, every case you come across, it's always kind of underlying everything is kind of self-esteem and resilience. And you see incredible, courageous people um, having to make huge changes in their lives and being able to help people through that. I realized there's something that I've been doing for quite a while anyway, um, through social work. So. I thought, you know, I wanted to be more autonomous. I wanted to go back to one to one work and I wanted to be more authentic to myself really and see if mm -hmm. I could build my own business. So, and then what happened, then my mum died mm. and, you know, inevitably as somebody dies, you think, oh, life is really short. And depending on your beliefs, you think, you know, um, one life perhaps unless you believe in the afterlife so i thought you know what there's no no more waiting mm -hmm. and that's when i just went i quit my job opened the shop with the intention that the coaching once i finished would would go alongside it wow and i mean sometimes it takes those kinds of moments to really put things into perspective and, and get yeah. us to think a little bit about what is it that i really value what is it that i love what would make me happy in my life oh. I, yeah you know the values work is really important i I think if anybody hasn't kind of done values work, I would really recommend it because you do really figure out who you are. And sometimes mm. I know that I think I was, I don't know whether I was trying to fit in or whether I was pretending quite a lot or whether I wanted the, you know, the managerial job. I don't know what it was, but doing that values work and revisiting that just really made me realize I wasn't actually being too authentic to myself. So mm. it helped a lot. Yeah. yeah. What is it that you feel like kind of leads people astray from their values? What is it that people can sometimes get caught in that pulls them away from that? I think, you know, it's the, it's the I, don't, I don't know how political to get, but I think it's just the, the pressures of everyday life and mm -hmm. community 
there's so much divide in communities in in England, and I'm you know from what I observe, America as well, For and sure. people are really struggling to pay their rent. They're choosing between eating or putting their heating on. Mm. Um, even if they work full time, they can't always afford the basics for their families. Um, mm. So I just don't think that society always gives you time um, and, and the privilege to be able to sometimes pursue other things mm. because you just survive, right? right. <laughs> you've, got, you've, you've got to get through life. So um, I would say it's pressures of society. Mm. That's a really good point. That's a very good point. I mean, like, like you said, you know, that need to survive is paramount to everything. I mean, if we aren't alive, then it doesn't really matter if I'm doing what I love. It doesn't matter if I, you know, am representing who I am in, in my everyday life, um, you know. And so, yeah, a lot of those needs do certainly get in the way. And unfortunately, I can imagine keep a lot of people from being able to go about doing the things that they love and being able to, to represent themselves and, and the work that they do every day. For you, I guess, what is it that? So, so you you have this this um, really unfortunate experience of losing your mom, and you, I suppose, begin the grieving process. And I guess at what point in that process did it really kind of hit you that you know this is what I think I'm going to do. You know, I'm going to open this gift shop and get this process going. You know, I think I'm ready to ready to get this going. Yeah, I. I took some time off work um, to kind of contemplate, like losing my mom really did hit me quite hard. Um, I had a lot of anger. So I, mm -hmm. um, my family is religious. I grew up in, um, as a Mormon. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, when my mom was dying, she, she didn't know whether she was going to heaven or not. Wow. Um, and you know what? I. I, I found myself going through a lot of anger for, for an institution that would make people so fearful of not being able to go to heaven when she's like, she, she was a, the most nicest, most mm -hmm. giving person, you know? Um, so I had a lot of anger for this, this organization, this religious organization. And I had, I think a lot of people experienced this as well. Like meaning for me completely disappeared. So I cared for her for quite a few months before she died. And it was, I, I, it was very hard, but I found it quite a privileged thing to do. And there was a lot of meaning in caring for her. And then after she died, I did reevaluate life and think, well, what is actually meaningful? And I found that I'd lost all meaning um, and purpose. And I didn't, I was so ambivalent about life. I really didn't care <laughs> whether I was living or not, because what was the point anyway? You know, what's, what's the point? Um, so I took some time of work to really try and take time to figure out what was meaningful and what, what changes could impact my mental health in, 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 a, in a more positive way. And part of that, I think, was, was, was getting rid of the job that I was in. I had to, had to do something different. So that became a priority quite quickly for me, because mm -hmm. if I was living life to the full, then it didn't mean being in that job for me, even though, and this is where the paradox comes in, the work itself was meaningful and the work helps so many people. And I'm not underestimating when I say it literally saves lives. It does, but yeah. I'd, I'd done my time there um, and I needed, needed something different. Sure. Yeah. And so you were in that position the entire time you were also caring for mom? Yes. 
Yeah, so I lived about an hour and 15 minutes from my mum. So my mum had a certain amount of um, care from the NHS that was free. Um, But there were four days of the week that she didn't have. So myself and my sister would get up at 6am where I lived um, on a Wednesday, drive to my parents, look after. I would try and work from home where my sister cared for and we'd do overnight care. And then we'd come home on Sunday and we we did that every week for, for several, several months. Wow, what was that so, like? Yeah. It, was, it was intense. It was it was it was really intense because my sister and I were both sleeping in the living room. Um, you know, no beds or anything. Uh, getting up in the middle of the night three or four times to help my mum. Then trying to work during the day and trying to um, do all your managerial bits, have meetings in in you know your parents' bedroom. To, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was private, so there was. There was a, a lot to there was a lot to handle as well as the emotions and you know when someone's dying the dynamics of the whole family shift and right. as the people are trying to figure out what their emotions are um so you're trying to fit in with several people's different way of mm-hmm. anticipatory grief and the way they're coping with the, with care so challenging yeah. yeah yeah and I mean, you're, you're trying to work with what everybody else's needs are, and then you're trying to meet mom's needs. And then you also have just the dynamic of shifting who the caregiver is now, which I imagine is a is a difficult thing to get used to. Yeah, it's, it's really hard when you always know it's coming, that the, the tables mm. will turn and that you will eventually, your parents will need some care or they'll need to be looked after. But, uh, yeah, I don't think you quite realize until you have to then step into that position. Right. Do you have any insight that you can offer for people who find themselves in that position? I know, you know, with with time comes age and especially, you know, I think with, with the pandemic, a lot of people are very aware of health and, um, you know, people can sometimes take a turn. And so I wonder if you have any insight for people who find themselves in a position where, now they are the caregivers for their parents or whoever was taking care of them. Yeah, what would I say? That's an interesting question. I'd say, first of all, you have to look after yourself. You, you hear it all the time, don't you, about people burning out. If you don't look after yourself, then how right. can you look after others? But it really is so true. Um, so use your support network as much as you can. But also I think mindset is really important. So I am... I have a tendency to catastrophize. Mm, um, and <laughs> I think, yeah. <laughs> so when someone's ill, I think you can go from, you know, here to like mm. there really, really quickly. Mm. And um, for a period of time, I was really interested in stoicism, right? I was reading a lot about stoicism. Yeah. And the main thing I took from stoicism in terms of mindset is don't embellish. So, you know, what can you see is happening? So, you know, my mum was ill on that particular day, she was ill, but not to take any further. Don't embellish the facts. Don't add any story mm-hmm. of my own to it. Just take it as it comes, take it as it is, the presentation as it is, mm-hmm. instead of turning a story in my head to something that perhaps wasn't there yet, increasing anxiety, increasing the stress. So that was really important for me. I had to remind myself of that mm-hmm. every day. Yes, she's struggling, but you know, in an hour she might not be, right. she was, you know, and don't add my own stuff to it. Right. Like you said, dealing with that present moment as things are and not adding an- another narrative to it. Yeah. I appreciate that. And that's, um, it's a big thing in mindfulness as well, which I, mindfulness is a huge thing for me that I 
have always found to be pretty helpful for myself because I, like you, I do a lot of catastrophizing. Um, I know just, just recently, um, we had gotten some really bad news about uh, one of our dogs having a health condition. And when we first got that news, my mind immediately went to, because they gave us a span of time, you know, it's a mild case. We're in the early stages of it. Um, and so, you know, there's a chance that he lives for another eight years. There's also a chance that, you know, he doesn't make it to the summer. And of course, which of those two do you feel is more emotionally salient? It's the summer. And so jumping right into that mindset, you know, it's like you're going through the grieving process before the loss even happens, um, which I know has been, it, it was something that I'm, I, I worked through and I'm still working through day to day. Um, yeah, I, there, there's so much wisdom and then trying to kind of stay with the moment and stay with where things are at. Um, so I guess, were there things about you that you kind of learned about yourself in this process as you're trying to, you know, take care of, uh, of, of mom, you're trying to meet other people's needs, you're trying to work this job, you're trying to take care of yourself. Were there things that you, you came to find out about you? Oh, gosh. What did I find out about me? Well, you know, I was, I was really scared because previously I had, I had really severe panic attacks, which were kind of related to deaths. And I, mm -hmm. I honestly was again, catastrophizing when we found out my mom had about eight months to live. I, I was like, well, that's, I'm, how am I going to do this? I thought that I wouldn't be able to talk to any doctors. I thought that I wouldn't be able to care without crumbling. I honestly thought that I couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then it reminds me of resilience that actually um, people, not just me, everybody is so incredibly resilient and they have so much more strength. And I think people know mm -hmm. that they have. Um, so I think to, to know that you do have strength in there, but you have to lean on others. Mm. So I did learn that I, I don't always like to lean on other people. I don't always like to ask for what I need because that is a hard thing to learn, isn't yes. it? Um, but I did learn during that time that I needed to learn to ask for what I needed and it was difficult, but I could do it and I've, I've mm -hmm. learned that. That's amazing. Yeah. It sounds like that made a pretty big difference for you, being able to lean on others. Yeah, a massive difference, but also self-compassion. Yes. You know, I, I, again, something I really struggled with, but I've learned that you can beat yourself up. So say if my mom was trying to say, I, say her, I got to have pills to her like 10 minutes late, you can really beat yourself up. But then the self-compassion is, you know, you are doing the absolute best you can. You love her. You're doing this with mm -hmm. so much compassion. Um, so be compassionate towards yourself. Yeah. Um, so that's another skill that I had to learn during that time, which I haven't been so great at in the past as well. Mm, I hear you. I mean, and I really do appreciate you sharing your story with us. Um, I know this isn't always the easiest thing in the world to talk about, but uh, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, and I love the, the focus on intention when it comes to self-compassion, like that I am doing the best that I can. I'm, if I, there's, there's no way in the world that I would be trying to do anything other than the best that I can right now. Um, and being able to kind of focus on that and yeah, where, where you're at with, with that intention. So kind of shifting over to this idea of resilience, because this is what you do on a day to day. This is what you're passionate about. What 
does resilience mean to you? Ah, oh, this is it's a really interesting question because it can mean lots of different things. Um, but there's a resilience expert in the UK called Chris Johnston that I did like an eight week masterclass. And I have actually adopted his definition because it's mm -hmm. the best one I found that I really like. So it's because people always say resilience is about bouncing back. Right. But but it's not that that that's such a it's it's misleading because even though there's a part about resilience which is bouncing back which is being able to go back to a state that you were before something happened you've got to realize that you can't always do that if you have a mental health challenge um there's a good chance that you won't ever um be exactly the person who you were you'll be different but maybe you'll be You'll be, you, there'll be things that you've, you've gained, you know, you've gained new skills, new resources, new connections, there's so much more you've gained, but sometimes you can't return exactly where you were. So I would say it's being able to either bounce back or cope with and adapt and think flexibly around, you know, adversity and challenges that come your way and just being able to manage and, and cope with them in a way that's, that's, that's best for you at the time. Mm, I like that definition. And I, I like that you added in the portion of not trying to go back to who you were, because I, I imagine that's a, it's a place where a lot of people can get stuck. Um, how do you, how do you imagine people can work with that when they find that tendency to want to, you know, they, they're so transfixed on like, well, I used to be able to do this, I used to be this person, you know, I used to have all these things, and I want to go back to that. How do how do we kind of work with that process? Yeah, well, I can give you a personal story if that sure. might help illustrate it. So back in 2014, I was a social worker for a children's hospice. And, uh, you know, I was I, up to that point, uh, you know, I was completely fine. I hadn't really experienced any mental health challenges up to that point, to be honest. And when I was facilitating a bereaved parents group, I had my first ever panic attack. And... Mm. Um, and that just spiraled, you know, I was having severe panic attacks every day. I was, I wasn't sleeping. Um, I wouldn't sleep for perhaps two or three days in a row. And, you know, it was just, it was just, uh, it was, it was, it was hard. It was a really challenging period of time. I would always, I don't know how I did it. I'd always show up to work every day, but I couldn't guarantee that I'd see the day out. You know, it might mm -hmm. be, sometimes I could just last an hour and I'd be like, no, I can't, I've got to go home. Mm -hmm. um, but that for me, you know, loss and bereavement has been a huge part of my life. It's been really important to me. And that was the job that I thought that I would do forever because um, bereavement and loss means so much to me. Um, but I had to leave that job and there's no way that I could have gone back. And before then, you know, I was confident. I didn't have any mental health challenges. I could do kind of speeches in front of 500 plus people and not even be nervous. And I went to having panic attacks every time I had to speak in public, um, mm. sometimes not being able to get, get through the day, not being able to get through a meeting. And I haven't ever really returned to that person, to be honest, um, that I was before then. However, I have gained lots more than I had. Um, and that has has been able to give me like different opportunities in life and new mm. experiences. So, and it, and it got me to, to hear, you know, after, after, after doing that, that's what led me to, you know, work in mental health education, um, to kind of, I think a lot of people that work in mental health have experienced it and they want mm -hmm. to give back. Um, so 
I think to deal with that, you have to accept that situation, which is really hard to accept that that's where you are. And, you know, go into therapy or read your books, learn strategies, do what you can, focus on yourself to heal. And then eventually, after all the pain and the, you know, you're out of the worst of it, Mm-hmm. You can reflect and realize the strengths that you've gained. Uh, I don't even know if that answered your question. Yeah, I, I believe so. Um, <laughs> you know, what, what all, yeah. And I, I feel like that acceptance piece that you mentioned is really important and it's, it's a difficult one to reach. And I know that, you know, when I deal with clients personally, sometimes when I propose the idea of acceptance, we always have this kind of visceral like knee-jerk reaction of just like, well, no, I, I can't kind of accept where things are at. And I feel like a lot of us can can kind of get stuck there where we are like, well, there must be a possibility. There must be a way of, of changing this. And it's like that, um, like we talk about like the traditional, you know, stages of grief. We talk about that, that denial stage um, of just like, there, there must be something that I can do here. Um, if you don't mind, what, what did that process kind of look for you, look like for you when you were trying to, when you finally got to that point where you accepted that you had to leave this job that you really loved uh, for, for children's hospice, correct? Yeah. Right. What, what, what did that look like for you having to get to that acceptance point? You know, it was, it was a, it was a grieving process. Uh, you know, there was lots of involved because um, as a lot of your listeners will know that experienced mental health challenges, when that happens to you, you get a lot of stigma, like, and mm-hmm. because you're kind of a different person. So all of a sudden people can't trust that you're confident or they can't trust mm-hmm. that you're going to see something through. Um, so you're hit, not only are you hit with this mental health challenge, you're mm-hmm. also hit with per- perception, a different perception and being treated differently by a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. And I, I I sort of just came to the realization that I needed to heal and I didn't need to worry about anybody else, that there was too much pressure to, it was, it was kind of like holding expectations. It's almost like a status, you know, it's almost like I'd worked my whole life to get there. I got mm. exactly what I wanted right. and then I couldn't do it anymore. Um, but so it was hard, but so what I did was I'm a reader. So that's my, that's my coping mechanism if mm-hmm. I need to. To, I, I go to books. So I think I read every single book on anxiety that possibly existed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that made me realize actually I needed to focus on myself. Mm. Yeah. And then so reading these books made me think, okay, you know what? That's just a point in time. And I, I can, I can, and I think it's hope as well. You know, you've got to be hopeful that you know, that panic attack happened in a split second, that first one. That does and anything good can happen in a split second as well. Mm-hmm. And you don't know when it's gonna happen. So you so I had to hope. Um, and sometimes other people had to hold that hope for me and remind me that if I left this stuff behind, I could find something else that was just as fulfilling and meaningful at some point. Um, you don't know when that's gonna be, but um you just gotta hope, I suppose, that that it will come because yeah. you've got to prioritize yourself because if you don't prioritize yourself then you know it might not come so right 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 and we got to recognize that dichotomy you know going back to kind of like the catastrophizing conversation that you know yes you know it might be that i don't uh that i don't find anything that feels this fulfilling there's also completely the possibility that i will and that perhaps i might even find something that's even more fulfilling than what i'm doing right now 
Yeah, absolutely. You never know. You absolutely never know. And and, and you know, I'm, I'm, it's, it's weird, but I'm kind of grateful for that experience now because mm. actually, you know, I, I did go on to do fulfilling work, you know, and, mm. and I was able to do that. Um, and and things, things can change. Things can change. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so, I mean, you've gone from, you know, working in children's hospice, then you went to the recovery college, um, and now you are in, in the coaching position. Um, what is it, I guess, how does this position feel compared to those positions that you previously worked? Are there things that you pull from those experiences? Are there things that um, maybe you had to kind of get used to for the first time? What, what's that process been like? Yeah, it's it's so different working for yourself um, mm. than working for, you know, statutory. I've always been a social worker or worked in a third sector. So uh, I've always worked in an institution if you like mm-hmm. um, or an organization and but I've learned so much through my experiences you know professionalism you know all the different things that people experience so it's the same the same as your role as a social worker as a counselor as a therapist you are in such a privileged position where you see people at their most vulnerable times um, and you see people that have experienced a wide range of stuff. So, you know, you take that deep respect and the, the stories and, you know, the, the boundaries and, and what you've learned on how to how people react and how people respond to situations. And you take you take something from everybody that, you know, that, that you that you've worked with right through. So um, it's just the experience and, and years, I think, that have really helped me to then have the confidence to set up my own, my own business. Right. You've had that experience being in these one-on-one situations, you're seeing people when they are, you know, at, like you said, like at, at their most vulnerable and they're sharing these kinds of things with you. Um, it sounds like that's something that's been kind of consistent throughout. Yeah. And, and you know, knowing, you know, having empathy to be able to put yourself in people's shoes a little bit, because mm. knowing how hard it is for someone to, right recognize that something needs to change and reach out to a therapist or reach out to a coach they just know that something's got to be different Mm. and that's so hard for people and knowing how hard that is (laughs) is is is, i think one of the most important things as well that that i can i can carry so you can be completely present with somebody and understanding of, of where they're at Right. And I think we all need those ways of kind of connecting with our clients uh, because sometimes, you know, it's at the end of the day, what we're doing is a job, but we want to be able to continue to treat it as more than just a job. You know, we want to be able to maintain that empathy and be able to maintain that connectedness with our clients. And I know one of the things that we talk about all the time in the therapeutic field is burnout and the danger of burnout because it can take that away from you very quickly. Uh, so do, are there things that you do to try to kind of maintain that empathy to try to avoid that burnout? Yeah. So I've been, I, I think, yeah, cause, cause what I like about your channel is because you talk about it a lot as well, just bringing your humanity, you know, you're just, you're a very real person and bring your humanity to your work as well, mm-hmm. which I think is really important. And if you are bringing yourself, your complete self, then you have to look after yourself as well. And mm-hmm. for me, that is, uh, you know, I go to therapy, I've been going to therapy for a while now, um, carving out space and time for 
mindfulness activities you really mm -hmm. enjoy um i try and practice what i preach so connection is a huge part of resilience and, mm -hmm. and being able to increase and maintain your resilience and i'm not always the best to be honest at uh keeping connections with people um sure. so sure. i i genuinely i'm just not that sociable however <laughs> i i i make um i make a point of seeing where perhaps uh, weaknesses are and I don't want to do it but I know the theory I know the science is going to be mm -hmm. good for me so I try and put myself in a situation mm -hmm. and something that's going to go towards that um, mm -hmm. which isn't always easy to do sometimes it's easier to stay in your comfort yes. zone um, but I try to do things regularly that is practicing what I preach right and it is really important for us to do that work um, just to kind of keep to keep tabs on ourselves because we, we're important too um, yeah. how do you balance, I guess, the, the business side of things as well? Cause I mean, with, you know, being a, you're a, a coach on one side and then you're also a business owner and I, I wonder how you, how you balance all of that. That's hard to be honest, because when you become self-employed, all of a sudden you don't have a Monday to Friday, nine to five anymore. Mm -hmm. You you have a 24 hour, um, and you have to be everything. And I don't think I really considered this when I opened the business, um, that you have to be everything. You have to be, uh, you have to do the job, but you have to do the marketing. You mm -hmm. have to, every job is yours. And you're good at doing the core work because that's what you've been trained to do. And that's what you're used to, but you're not good. To, you don't have any experience in the other stuff. So mm -hmm. I work a lot more um, than I did, but I try and find, try and find some pleasure in it, you know? So mm -hmm. I try and make things into a little game <laughs> mm -hmm. or okay. um, to, to try and do, to try and get through the stuff that perhaps I'm not so good at. Um, and I do have, um, I learned this thing through business that you have to have a list of preservation goals. Um, mm. So pre preservation goals are things that no matter what happens, you, you're not gonna miss it. So for mm. some people that might mean, um, you know, they go and watch their kid play football on a Saturday morning or something. That's their preservation goal. No matter what comes through the door, nothing's mm. doing that. So, um, so I've got a list of, of, of things that I will protect um, and do no matter what. So that's, that helps with the balance, um, mm. making things enjoyable. Um, and also there is just a, a, a general pleasure of being completely able to decide where I take the business, you know, mm -hmm. I decide what my values and principles are. Um, I decide what to do with the business and what good I can do with it and, mm -hmm. and, and I can help through it. Uh, yeah, that kind of flexibility is nice. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, I guess it's two-sided. We, you know, you, you have to work a lot more, but at the same time, you know, you get that flexibility to decide where things go and what you preserve and, you know, you are the yeah. ultimate decider in all of that. Yeah, which is scary, but great. <laughs> yes, and it's, it, I am, I'm approaching the point now where um, I'll have my independent licensure, because um, we have like our provisional, and then we have the independent, um, and I, I'll have it here in just a couple months, and I, I floated the idea of like, do I want to go into private practice one day? And it really does scare me so much having to handle all of it, and like, if anything goes wrong, that was me. Like if, if anything needs to be done, it, I need to do it. And you know, it, 
that really does scare me a lot thinking about that. Um, I imagine that probably took some steps for you as well, being able to accept that. Okay, if I'm going into this, I'm I'm taking on everything. Yeah, you know what? And I think there was definitely some naivety around it. And there mm. were definitely some things that I had no idea. About. <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, but but you know what? It's 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 fine. I you just have to make a decision that you're all in, mm-hmm. and um, you've got it's that word hope again. You've got to hope mm. that you put the work in. It's it's gonna be okay. You do your best. It's gonna be okay. Right. But, I can appreciate that. I can, yeah, I, I can definitely, I can appreciate that. And I, I like the, um, I hear kind of like the, the stoicism coming out again when you're talking about the things that you don't necessarily like to do, you know, uh, treating it like a game or like a challenge as like the Stoics would, um, yeah. and being able to kind of yeah, take, take it on that way. Um, so I know you mentioned, you know, kind of bringing the conversation even back to values. What do you find you want to you want your business to represent or what kind of values you want to be able to represent? Yeah. You know, I, the most important thing for me was to be community facing, right? Mm-hmm. That's so important to me. And even though I'm kind of in the private sector now, I'm still a social worker. So I've still got those values that, you know, that want to do good. So I'm not always a great business person. So I've got this shop and, um, I've got a load of kind of books, you know, self-help books, books that have helped me, books that I help, that I know have helped other people in mental health. Mm-hmm. And people get to talking to me and I might give them a book. And, and then I don't charge for it, but it's, uh, so I'm not always the greatest of business, but mm-hmm. it's more important for me to be for all mental health, well-being to be accessible. Mm. Um, so that's that's in my head i want to be community community facing accessible and when i earn some money to Mm. be able to put that back into the community in kind of grassroots kind Mm. of activities that's what i'm hoping for yeah i I like that i mean because we are at the end of the day we are a part of that community you know um if we were to think about the place where we live as you know a as one single organism you know we are doing our part to maintain the health of that organism um and i love to hear that you know that that is part of the mission Uh, i feel like that you know just kind of thinking about it i imagine that that would be one of the things that would help you to stay rooted and stay connected to the work that you're doing and be able to maintain that empathy because it's not so much about, you know, here's a client, this is what the session represents, they are my nine to 10 o'clock, you know, anything like that. It, it represents far more than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just, I think it's just, you know, knowing that everybody's got their stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Everybody's going through a really difficult time for, for various reasons and, you know, I want my work, my, my shop, my business, I want it to be like a, like a safe space for everybody, you know, right. inclusive, safe space for everybody. With just, you know, the basic respect that it's, you know, right. treat, treat everybody as, as the human, the individual human that they are. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. And we need a lot of that nowadays. Um, it, it's there can be so much toxic toxicity in so many different places. And so to be able to be just one part of a safe haven, um, I, I feel like that can mean a lot for that can mean a lot for people. 
Um, so I, I really appreciate that you you come from that perspective. Um, so I would love to be able to talk a little bit about your experience with therapy, not going into specifics of like, what did you talk about on this day? Um, if, if you're open to that. Yeah, yeah, I can talk about therapy. Oh, wonderful. Sure. Um, so uh, what was it like, I guess, for you being a new client? You know, you talked about the it can be really difficult for our clients to come to us and to have this experience with therapy. And so I wonder what it was like for you going in, if you had conceptions about it, um, any, yeah, just what was that experience like? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, cause I haven't had the best experience. It's interesting. So I was watching your, one of your TikToks the other oh, day, yeah. <laughs> the, the four experiences that you've had with therapists. Right? Yes. When I was, First, thinking about going to therapy, I actually had no idea what kind of therapy I, I needed. Um, so first of all, we had this service in the in the UK um, called the Wellbeing Service. Okay. Uh, it's, a, it's a free service you can self-refer, and then you kind of have like group psychoeducation, CBT, and then you can then move on to the next stage and have individual CBT sessions. So I've done CBT, but to be honest, that didn't help me very much. Mm -hmm. I feel like it. I feel like it could sometimes help me in a moment if I remembered, if I remembered mm -hmm. it, to get myself out of some anxiety or something. But I don't suppose it really helped me any deeper than that. Mm -hmm. And then I was so desperate. Anybody that experiences, you know, anxiety, depression, anything like that, there's a desperation of just needing it gone. <laughs> yes. So I went through this process of, oh, what's just gonna get it? gone so then I thought I'd go to hypnotherapy right mm -hmm. so I went to hypnotherapy and I thought, honestly I the therapist was so arrogant oh, he, no. he basically said to me there's nobody he can't fix nobody <laughs> and that, he he can do so he can do anything um I was like, okay, well, I need my anxiety gone and I need to stop being like, stop having to take like beta blockers, you know, just to calm it down yeah. in some stressful situations. And he said, yeah, no, it's just easy. Um, and it turned out he couldn't really do it. Couldn't, he couldn't get rid of it, mm. but he blamed me. Um, wow. uh, he said that, you know, uh, and I don't know that there is that school of thought, isn't there? You will know more about this than me that sometimes you hold on to stuff because it's serving you in some way mm -hmm. I don't know but sure. the way he said it was just was just like it's my fault and then mm -hmm. he said I'll try and go down to half a pill one day but text me if it doesn't work and we'll have another session so it didn't work and I texted him but he basically ghosted me oh my goodness <laughs> yeah he never replied but I think that's the, I think that was more on him because he yes he had said that there hasn't been anybody that he hasn't been able to get right. rid of anything. And it turns out he couldn't. So I don't know whether that was a self-preservation thing for him to, mm -hmm. to, not, right. to not help me. But I, I would have to I, bet. I would have to bet, yeah. <laughs> Goodness. And anyway, after that, I thought, okay, I need a different therapist. And I went to a guy and we did some EMDR, but mm -hmm. it didn't work because I don't know. It just it didn't work. He mm -hmm. he, uh, or maybe there the, maybe there wasn't a specific trauma that I could think of or I could hold on to as such mm -hmm. as to why. So maybe that didn't work. So I had about three or four sessions with him, 
And then about a year ago, I decided to look again for a therapist and I came across. But by then I'd started to realize that you can't just intellectualize your way out of stuff, mm -hmm. which is again, what you talk about a lot, which mm -hmm. I think is what I was doing. I know every strategy I know, you know, I've read every book, mm -hmm. um, but actually I kind of need to feel this now. So I was looking for a therapist actually that was perhaps a bit, more, bit deeper, a bit spiritual or a bit more somatic in their way of working. Mm -hmm. um, so I came across this therapist and yeah, he introduced IFS to me mm -hmm. and IFS has been a, and it's uh, people don't know internal family systems mm -hmm. uh, it's, been a, it's been a game changer like, like it, it really has it's been yeah it's been amazing actually uh yeah wow <laughs> I, I and so you know with, with internal family systems you know it's uh, a lot of people sometimes, you know, again, for people listening, sometimes people can refer to it as like the, the, the parts work. We acknowledge yeah. those different parts of ourselves that are doing these different jobs. And we, you know, try to work within that as a way of, uh, as a way of being able to cope with things. Um, are there ways, are there ways that you feel like IFS really worked for you? Or like, I guess, are there components about it that you feel like clicked for you more than like CBT, hypnotherapy, MDR? I think, you know, the first thing that hit me was that in IFS, they basically believe that every single person has these innate qualities and that you're born with them, you have them, there's no way you can get rid of them, um, which as a starting point was pretty good for me because when you're in a headspace where, you know, you can't think about it, someone says, oh, you're compassionate or, um, you know, you're a creative and if you're in a headspace, it's just like, no, no, no. Mm -hmm. um, yeah and not any of those things but knowing that is the basis is that you are perhaps you just don't have access to it at the moment or perhaps you don't know how to utilize it at the moment so knowing that there were some innate good qualities mm -hmm. within me was actually kind of nice and um, so that was that was a good starting point and then you know when he first introduced it to me i thought that it was ridiculous to be honest i, I mm -hmm. did i thought that you want me to talk to sure. you know you, what uh -huh. that, <laughs> that's fair that's fair and they're gonna they're gonna answer me uh -huh. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> surely surely not mm -hmm. um so the first time we tried it i was very i because i didn't i hadn't quite believed in it and i hadn't quite been able to let go so it was a it was it was a bit it was a bit hard, but then I went all into it. And I talked to this anxious part of me. Um, and so in IFS, you kind of ask, you ask this part what it wants you to know, and then your part tells you, and then these parts are often younger. And sometimes they forget that you've grown, grown up now. And you say asking the part how old it is and how old it thinks you are can mm. be really good and knowing that is really helpful because this part of me um this anxious part i was talking to my anxious part of seven years old and it thought that i was 13. Mm. so being able to work with it remind it that i'm an adult remind it that you know i've got all the skills now and it doesn't have to protect me like it like it needed to as a child and i asked the part the seven-year-old me we were walking in the woods and the seven-year-old me was kicking up leaves. I asked it what it needed. Um, and she told me that she needed me to, to play more, to have more mm. fun. And 
and which then gets you reflecting on your childhood. And I think I was quite a serious person, didn't mm -hmm. play very much. And then, so I just, I just started feeding, feeding the parts of me that I recognize. Mm. I get to know them every day. I talk to them now. Um, mm. I get to know them. They get to know me. I ask them what they need. They do actually tell you. Wow. And then if I wow. make an effort to do what they've asked me to do, like have more fun, play more, mm -hmm. then it does reduce, it does, it does reduce my anxiety. It does make me, me calmer. It does help with my mental health a lot. Wow. Cause I mean, it sounds like you're connecting with yourself on a much deeper level than maybe you used to be connecting. Yeah. In, in fact, I think I spent quite a lot of the last two or three years not connected at all. Mm. Um, no, I think a lot of, a lot of us can walk around completely numb, you know, not being able to feel parts of your body, not being able to, yeah, just not being connected or trying to zone out. You know, we all use coping mm -hmm. mechanisms to zone out, don't we? Like TV, eating, drinking, whatever it is, we're trying mm -hmm. to escape from. Um, but then when you realize that actually, and then the, the famous book is called No Bad Parts. And when you're talking to them, you understand the reasons why they are playing the role they are. They've always got good intentions and then you can become much more compassionate towards the parts, parts that you consider bad. Mm. Um, and then you kind of been, you're connecting more and you're kind of feeling more in harmony with, with, with them. Right. Right. Which, yeah, which is, has, has been incredible, actually. It's been an incredible shift. Wow. And when you were, I mean, as we were talking about with self-compassion, I imagine that, you know, having that shift of, you know, thinking about me currently, who I am sitting here in this chair with these thoughts that I have, having compassion for that guy is different than having compassion for, you know, this, this inner child that I have. It, it really shifts the way that I think about myself. And it, is that how you experienced it as well? Yeah. Yeah. Because, because before, if I just see myself as I am now, mm. um, it's, it's, it's easy not to feel the compassion because you don't always look at yourself in in the reasons why you know we're automatically hardwired to think of the mistakes we've made or all the difficult things we've gone through and all the negative stuff whereas if you think about yourself more in the parts of you as individual parts of you and the reasons why that you've mm -hmm. had to do certain things then you can feel much more compassion for yourself sitting here. But you almost have to, I almost have to go to them first to then feel compassion for the me now. Mm -hmm. um, but with more practice, I think it will just come more easily that, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right, it becomes the, the new reflexive coping skill um, versus yeah. the zoning out, the eating, the drinking, um, which I mean, it's, it's difficult for us to give up on those things, or at least for us to want to, for us to want to replace them, um, you know, because it, it, it works for us, you know, going and just flying through life, not recognizing what day it is, just going and going and going, you know, that can at times feel a lot easier than the self-reflection and the self-compassion. Um, but at the same time, it holds us back from really being able to reach this deep place where we might find things like that self-compassion and these new ways of connecting with like, you know, instead of me ignoring what I need, what if I were to stop myself and actually really contemplate what I need right now and take that really seriously? Yeah. Yeah. It makes a huge difference. And, and you know, it's not easy. You can't pretend it's easy. It's not. Right. Um, and, and, you know, yeah. some of those coping skills, I would say, are good. It's just sure. about whether you do them with intention or not. Right. Um, 
and, and you know you're choosing i'm going to do this for a couple of hours instead of it being your constant state of being sure. if you like sure um, right um i i also wonder i guess uh, one of the things like like you mentioned we've been talking a lot um We've been talking a lot about intellectualization over on TikTok, um, and just you know, and for for people who are kind of wondering what that is, the sometimes us learning so much about our conditions and just treating our conditions and our mental health and just who we are as being something in like a book where I can kind of read all these things and I you know I know that book front to back, but I don't really connect with it in in a deeper way, and so I guess I wonder for you if. You know, if intellectualization is something that it sounds like you've said you do, you know, you've read every book on anxiety, all of that. Um, has IFS helped you to work around that, or I guess work with it rather? Yeah, it hundred percent has. Um, like as as you say, you can read every book, and I think I have. But if you don't actually practice it, um, like all the strategies all the time, if you don't connect with it in some way, none of it's going to help you. Um, mm. And I think you have to get into your body. There's some, you know, there are so many strategies which might help in a moment. So I've got strategies that will bring me out of a panic attack mm-hmm. um, or I've got strategies that will stop me getting really, really deep in rumination or really deeply um, in, into a really sad episode. Um, mm-hmm. But that's just in the moment. It's not lasting. And I think mm-hmm. getting into your body and IFS teaches you to, you know, what's, What's the trailhead? They call them trailheads. So um, it's, the, it's either a thought or a feeling in the body. And then if it's a thought, you try and find where it is in the body as well. So mm-hmm. being able to find where something is in your body, whether that's tension, anxiety, whatever it is, really helps you practice um, those skills. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one of the few things that I've really stuck with. Um, you know, so I tried meditation before. Meditation is kind of hard for me. I've tried mm-hmm. to sit down every day to do it. Um, but I can sit down every day and talk to my parts. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so it's finding what works for you, I guess, and what feels what feels right to you. But it's certainly definitely done that for me. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm really happy to hear that you've had that experience. Um, yeah, the uh, that that can be really difficult, and you know, I know that the, the sitting with ourselves can be very difficult. And um, I, I agree that I, I feel like the. I, I used to come from a really like cognitive behavioral approach because that's kind of re- like that was the first therapy I think that I learned about within my uh, within my, my my master's program, um, and it was and has always really been pushed as being like the gold standard for like this if if there's something going on this will probably be able to really do the trick. Um, and it's helped me out a lot personally, and I still use CBT with myself a lot. Um, but I, I I do agree. I feel like connecting somatically is really important um and it's i think the missing building block that a lot of people need uh when they can't just kind of think their way out of a situation or like you mentioned you know when you're having a panic attack sometimes you know we can recognize that this is a fleeting event this is going to end you know there's going to come a point where i'm not going to feel like this anymore and at the same time you know sometimes it can help to have alongside that some of the somatic things to help us through that experience. Yeah, definitely. And I think since I learned that, and sometimes it's so uncomfortable that you don't want to know that that's the solution because mm-hmm. actually some feelings are just so overwhelming. Yes. You, you don't know what to do with them. You'll do anything not to, mm-hmm. not to feel oh, yeah. them. 
um so it's really hard it's really hard but mm -hmm. since i realized that that's probably going to be the way for me to heal right then right. it's um, it has it has it has done a lot for me that's amazing that's amazing yeah. um i uh i certainly share that experience um, as somebody who has intellectualized for a very long time um, and being very afraid of feeling these things. And, you know, I've done so many things over the years to cover up the way that I felt. Um, you know, it is genuinely intimidating, but being able to really just connect with it and, and find ways of not making the emotion go away, but being able to tolerate the emotion and allow it to, to run its course, allow it to give you the information that it wants to give you. And then working with it from there. Um, I think that that, as far as a cognitive piece, that's been a big shift for me. That's allowed me to focus more on the somatic, uh, the somatic aspect. So um, as we kind of come to an end today uh, with this conversation, which uh, I greatly, greatly appreciate you coming on and, and sharing so much of your experience of, of, you know, how you look at the therapeutic field, how you have experienced this field and just being willing to share so much of your story. I really appreciate it so much. Um, if there's anything that you would want to kind of leave people with in terms of, you know, self-esteem, compassion, um, resiliency, anything, what do you feel like you would like to leave people with today? Uh, you know what, if I just had one message, um, it would be connect, connect with, with people, connect with nature. Um, just, find a way to connect um, and, and feel in your body and connect with others. Because I honestly feel like connection is one of the biggest keys to coping, coping mm -hmm. with stuff, you know, having that support network. And I know it's hard because, you know, I, I would say that I don't exactly have a whole load of friends. I don't have a whole load of confidants. I don't have, um, I'm, I can be really socially awkward, you know, I can't, mm -hmm. I, don't always, I don't find it the easiest to connect with people. But if I would say, if you can just try one small thing to connect in a different way every day with something or someone, then, then try and do that is what I would say. Mm -hmm. that's, an, that's an amazing message. That's an amazing message. Wonderful. Well, Brianne, um, anything you would like to plug here at the end of the podcast, your socials, anything like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can, I'm, I'm, this is Brianne Cook, pretty much on, on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, um, yeah, or the Pied Wagtail is my shop, um, I'm not really a big plugger, but I love to connect with people, so mm -hmm. if anyone wants to come over, just say hi or whatever, um, that, that's awesome, um, and thank you, I really appreciate this, I've really enjoyed talking yeah. with you, and, um, I've enjoyed watching these and watching your content as well, so thank you, thanks to you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, uh, I really, again, I appreciate you being here. Um, so Brianne Cook, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, and thank you to all of those listening. Uh, this has been the Please Stay Inside podcast. Again, I am Rob, and we will talk with you later.